Hi, this is Queer Margins, Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. This podcast speaks to those on the margins of the LGBTQ community, and this series, we're hearing from older queer people about their experiences. This includes living in a time where homosexuality was illegal, when people were prosecuted for loving one another, the introduction of HIV, and of a life in a time where being queer was nowhere near as accepted as it is today. And this is episode 8, Tony. Not long after I got back from there, I think I met somebody who came to the Tony Figures Trust as a volunteer, and we fell in love and moved in together. They became very ill. He developed AIDS. Um became very ill. He died at home, where I actually live now still. He died at home in 1989. And that whole experience just really pulled me apart. And I I just couldn't work with Terence against Trust, really. I couldn't, it didn't seem to be enough of me, enough strength in me to carry on at that time. It was suggested that I speak to Tony by Janet from an earlier episode, and Femi also mentioned him in passing while I was talking to her. Tony's been very busy during his life. He's lived and travelled all over the world. He worked on Switchboard for years. He was the first chairperson of the Terence Higgins Trust, and he was also outed to the world when he appeared in a film about gay life in Brighton. He was filmed kissing his partner during the documentary, and was later fired from the shop BHS for his involvement in the film. This actually sparked protests across the country, and it's something that we speak about during the interview. Tony has lived with HIV for many years, and he saw his health seriously deteriorate when he was on death's door. Because of this, he was left with many life-altering conditions, including being blind in one eye and partially sighted in the other. So this is one of the last interviews that took place in public. So there is a little background noise at some points, but it does get better, so please bear with it. Tony's life and his stories are fascinating, and he's done so much, so it was a huge pleasure to talk to him. So, here he is. Like most people, I knew I was gay, even before puberty. But I had no idea what it really was. It was, that, it was because puberty, when I was 13, coincided with the sexual offences reforms, and therefore there was publicity even though that seemed to consist, as I remember in my head, uh, blacked-out silhouettes. <laughs> but um, that, that, that gave me a, a bit of a language and a bit of an understanding thing. I knew I wasn't alone, but I never properly met another gay person until I went to university. went to college, formed gay sock, fell in love properly for the first time, had sex properly, within a, I mean properly, like, with something I really liked and it was all um, and uh, yes had a, had a had a great time when I came out of college I, I, I didn't go to I didn't go to my parents I actually went to my grandmother who knew I was gay oh wow how did she say like how did that come about <laughs> she did she she wanted to come stay with me when I was living in a house in uh I'd moved out of college and we were living in a house in Durham and I, and it was kind of obviously necessary to tell her. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> she was kind of, you know, partly upset, partly not. But anyway, I, I stayed with her down in the South Coast and I, I got a job I didn't, didn't like and didn't want, but it was a kind of bit of 
a little bit of pressure to try it. Mm. It was um, working for the British Home Stores. I was there one week, and a program I made with people from the gay groups in Brighton, where I was going visiting them because we didn't live that, we weren't staying that far away. Was shown on television, so I started on the Monday, Saturday morning. The manager wanted to see me because it had been on Friday evening, and it all kicked off. Right, so I read about this. Yes, so you know all of that. I don't even know what the film was about. The film was just about gay life in Brighton, and I think you can probably find it or a large chunk on YouTube still or something. Um, and I went, I was part of the CHE, I think we were CHE campaign for homosexual equality group in Brighton. And I was having a sort of relationship with something in that group. So I was in the film, but looking at it a few months back, horribly struck down. I didn't say anything sensible, the whole thing. I just, I, um, but anyway, I was in the film. Uh, and part of the film, which you know how films are made, they want to fill in, a bit of colour, a bit of colour. The colour of, of this film was me being met off a train in Brighton, or me meeting with off training bikes and having a kiss and walking off into Brighton in those days a gay kiss on TV was still attractive attention so I didn't actually say anything sensible in this whole program but I did I was kissing a guy and walking arm in arm and that that you know and um, so there was a hell of a lot of fuss I was suspended because I was you know, like I was only there a week probationary period in a trainee management thing Oh, before we knew it, there were demonstrations in Worthing and Brighton in Oxford Street around the country. It was quite a, it became quite a big thing, uh, I remember. I, it was a, a real thrill and an education for me. And like, it was all surrounding you as well, like you remember that I was still... Yes, yes, yes. It was yes. quite nice. Well, sort of, fun. sort of. I mean, of course it did. I enjoyed it. I, 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 was, I was fascinated by that. I mean, it was a steep learning curve. Um, well, I'd never been gay at university, even though it was the first gay sock we'd ever had at Bow. I mean, it was a kind of charmed world. Right. A bit sheltered. It was very sheltered. Um, this was this was quite different. This was um, this one. Uh, this was out on the streets. Yeah, and I guess I was going to ask you, like, did you not expect some backlash from that? Um, yes, I expected oh, backlash, okay, and yeah. I didn't really care. I didn't actually want the job. It was just a bit of pressure. and well, not pressure, but basically the family is saying, give it a go, you might like it. Yeah. Um, retail management. Well, no, I didn't like it. And actually... I'd already got a place to do a postgrad uh, education thing, PGCL, at Sussex University. Um, so I'd already made up my mind. But, you know, who knows, I could have cancelled that if I'd really... But I... So... No, I don't... I don't, I don't think I was naive. I was just... Uh, well, I was a little naive, yes. I was a little how did your manager see it? Well, it, I, I never asked actually. You must have seen it on television. It was on. It was on the local. It wasn't a national program. It was on the local TV. Curiously enough, because of their actions, it attracted so much publicity that it was on national television, including national BBC News. 
I remember having to phone up mum and dad and say, look, in about 10 minutes on the news, you're going to see something. And that's how I came out to mum and dad. Oh, my God. Not ideal. They were upset, shocked. My father, oh, my God. My mother, I always knew. Um, she said she had an idea. Um, and uh, they've always been wonderfully... I mean, they've been wonderfully supportive. They asked... My mother died earlier this year. My father's still alive, but very old. They've been wonderful supports to myself and my life and relationships and work all this time. It's been amazing. Do you expect them to have like more negative reactions? No, they behaved more or less how I kind of understood they would. Yeah. I was very fortunate with mum and dad because I know very well some horrendous experiences many people had because I worked as a volunteer in London lesbian against Switchboard. When all this British home stores hit the fan and that, it ended up with, um, I suppose nowadays you'd call it constructive dismissal. Well, I was put in a position where I felt I had no choice but to resign, even though I'd wanted them to sack me. Obviously yeah. it would have. Um, but, you know, they kind of said, part of your, what you signed up for as a trainee manager is we can move you anywhere, so we'll move you here, and if you do anything locally, we'll move you there, and then we'll move you again, and then we'll move you again. But on one of the demonstrations, I met someone who was in London, we became a relationship. I changed my course from my postgrad to from Brighton to London University. So that's... And then how long were you with them? Five years. I don't think I treated people so terribly kindly in those days, but I, you know, I was young and the rest of it... Because um, as I remember, it was me that broke off the relationship. And he was a terribly kind person. He was a, we had a wonderful time, but just I didn't I didn't want to settle down particularly. I mean, there was much I liked about settling down, but I was only what 22, 23. So what was it like going back to London when HIV was on the rise? Well, you say HIV was on the rise, yes, but there was still very. Well, first of all, let's be clear, we hadn't identified the cause, so there was no discussion about HIV, speculation that it was virally induced, so there were people with all sorts of theories like too much sex, too much drugs, whatever. I was trained as a zoologist and psychologist, that was my degree, joined on as zoologist and psychology, I, I taught biology, I kind of went with the viral causation, it made most sense to me, you know, after all people had been having lots of sex and taking drugs for a very long time without... AIDS happening, yeah. but there were relatively few cases, so it felt like we were in the eye of a storm working at Switchboard or the very early days of Terence Higgins Trust, but it was a storm that most of the world seemed to be ignoring, so it was very unreal. Were there many people that you knew that were affected by HIV? Well, I didn't, I didn't have, in the very beginning, I didn't have personal friends who, again, because we didn't know if people were infected with HIV. I do remember the first person I saw who was seriously ill we we had a buddy scheme again the kind of thing we'd learned from the states and i went to see this person who was out in north london he'd been working in america in new york and he'd come back because he was so ill and i was and he was with his he was at his parents home who were lovely i i, I do remember just being so shocked because he looked ill but he had or the great marks of Kaposi's sarcoma. And at that time, all I'd ever seen was a very small spot on somebody I met at the Trust and pictures in papers I'd never seen. He was a very old man and he died not long after I'd first met him. So I saw him a few times. Um, 
Yeah, he died. And then the partner of one of the people I was working with at the, at the trust, they they were ill. Also, I can't remember the exact date, but I do remember when the virus was identified because we were expecting it, but it hadn't been identified. There was this thing I think we must in between people in the states, and people in France. And the states are trying to sort of muscle in a bit on on, Fen- uh, on, on, on the French team's findings. But uh, a virus was found. It went under the name of HTLV3, I think, at the very beginning. Uh, I, I think that was very important because and the following on from that, quite rapidly, a test was in, developed for the virus. So for the first time, we could start telling that there were people infected, that the whole HIV positive develop. Nothing was straightforward. I mean, I don't think it is now when you're dealing with something like HIV. But um, because the test became available, but there was no treatment, that was a, a complex ethical issue for people to get their heads around. Yeah, you get tested, yeah, and find out you've got a virus, and in those days, didn't even know whether that meant you've got six months, six years, or, or what the... We didn't even that fully understand the incubation period, so that was, you know... The, the fundamental was to try and protect yourself if you didn't know your status and to protect other people whether or not you knew your status. So this whole safer sex message was valid in all the circumstances there. Did you get that? Yes, I did. And I was positive, okay. which was no surprise. Were you not surprised when you found out? No, I wasn't surprised at all. I thought I fitted, fitted the kind of descriptions of the people who were infected and I'd also well I had quite a bit of unprotected sex I had uh, I remember a short break on my way to Rio in 79 I stopped off in New York so uh, certainly had a good time there and now we know that the virus was already circulating so I I I wasn't surprised. I was also in some ways fortunate because, of course, my work with the trust had brought me into contact with a lot of the doctors because we had medical committees and I had all these meetings working with hospital doctors. I I was quite well supported and I just thought, okay, I don't know how long I've got. I'm going to work even harder. So I I didn't deal with it by hitting the whiskey or the drugs or something. I dealt with it by, by, yeah, getting really, really working even harder. There was a bit of a time when when the, the... Metaphorically, the whiskey and the drugs did come in, but this was much later when I was very ill. Did you get ill at like some point? Yeah. Well, if we could just take a step back, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was about sometime. I think it might have been eighty-five, eighty-six. I was able to get some money together and did a, a, a bit of a tour of the English-speaking AIDS projects. Um, we at the Trust very much were trying to work with uh, people on the European mainland, of course. But New York was so advanced because of it. So I went to New York, I went to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Auckland and New Zealand, and uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and some of the early Trust posters actually came from, I think, Australia. So... Uh, I got, I, 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 not long after I got back from there, I think I met somebody who came to the Tennessee Trust as a volunteer, and we fell in love and moved in together. They became very ill. They developed, he developed AIDS. Um, became very ill. He died at home where I actually live now. Still, he died at home in 1989. 
and that whole experience just really pulled me apart and I I just couldn't work with Terence against Trust really I couldn't I just I, 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 it didn't seem to be enough of me enough strength in me to carry on at that time I had a very I just remember a very rough time I I did do some HIV work uh, I remember that through a friend I was able to go to Russia at the end of winter and the end of communism as it happened to do some talks to you know not officially but in Moscow and Leningrad as it was then that would have been in about March I think the ice was just breaking up on the river so after that I got a job I worked for a project called Streetwise Youth which was in Earl's Court that was working with young men who sell sex. So HIV education was very much part of it, but we did a whole load of things. And I worked there for some years. When I was, not long after I started working there, um, I literally passed in the street. The person with whom I now live, with whom I am married to. Uh, and I, I learned that he was actually sharing a flat with a person whose job I had taken over. And he and I, we went away on holiday together. Um, and uh, when we came back, the person where he'd been living, that person had died from AIDS. And my partner's stuff had been put out in God knows where. He never got anything back except the suitcase we took on holiday. We've been living together ever since. Wow. So how long were you away from? Wait, wait, two weeks? Just a holiday. He was living with died. Died? The flat was closed and Paco's stuff had disappeared. Oh, so he was tested and came out positive. I was pretty well. Can't remember when the first spot of Kaposa's sarcoma appeared on me, but um, it was small. And I knew enough about HIV to know I wasn't just about to drop off my perch because of that. We lived pretty intensely. Um, you know, not quite the sex and drugs and rock and roll, but we did. We, 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 we would go out, we traveled, we... We, we, um, I remember we, we went to, when we could find things cheap, we uh, had a week in Victoria Falls and went canoeing on the Zambezi and, you know. Was that kind of like, because you both had the virus, well, why not? Go for it. And those were the things that interested us both. I mean, yeah, we also went to Paris and places, of course, but yeah, we went to Kenya and hired a beat up old car, took a cheap beach, beach holiday, hired a beat up old car and drove off into the interior. You know, we really... And then sometime in the mid-90s, we just became too ill. I think it was not long after the, the Zambezi trip, and um, I ended up in hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks with really horrible, weird AIDS-related infections. He was a little later than me. I mean, I don't know how long later... Thank goodness we were never both in hospital at the same time. But I mean, we were both awfully ill. Um, and yeah, I kind of expected to die. But um, after developing carposis, developing weird CMV infections, developing um, MAI, kind of like a TB sort of thing, right. mycobacterium, 
um, eye disease. I, uh, the new medicines came along and, you know, we were among the first people to get them on a sort of experimental basis. And the whole thing people call the Lazarus effect. Didn't exactly get up and start dancing, but uh, it pulled you right back on the edge. It was, but I mean, we'd seen so much death, and we'd seen so much of how people had almost, in a way, um, gone out with a bang. My goodness, it'd been some amazing funerals, I can tell you. Oh, 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 when my then partner died in 89, we had a funeral. I mean, the church was full of flowers, and the music was great. We were all dressed up. There was no one to wear any dark, somber clothes. And, wow. Yeah. What was your partner who died name? George. George. So, when he died, it was kind of like a bit of a party. Yes, yes, because the whole idea was to celebrate a life rather than to mourn yet another death. Yeah. I mean... In the early 90s, I suppose, most of my best friends died. How did George die? Oh dear, I can't. Um, I guess he must have been around 30. Uh, in his 30s. Yeah. In yeah. his early 30s, I suppose. I, I, I'm not good at remembering no. things. I can remember his face yeah, and his smile you. and the fun we had. and. After being with George and him like dying, it must have taken a lot to get back in a relationship with somebody. And he was a man, is a man of enormous charm, Spanish. Um, remember, I'd spent time living in South America, the Portuguese speaking, um, working in Spain. So, um, so he caught my attention. He was funny and interesting and good looking. And and you're still together now. And we're still and we're still together now. Yeah, we became civil partners, which we converted to a marriage. So, when you both got ill, was that the last time, and you started on like the experimental drugs, was that the last time you got ill? No, no, um, we had both. I think maybe the medicine, especially the early ones, and the illnesses we had because of AIDS then, I think uh, it's an experience of quite a few survivors. I like that word, because it's true, but Quite a few of us feel that um, know that I had a lot of health problems following on from that. The eye disease was halted by treatment because um, it was a CMV related, which was, you know, because of the compromised immune system. But of course, the damage wasn't repaired, so I'm totally blind in one eye, and I've lost, I don't know, 30% or so of the other eye. Thankfully, I can see you, although your eyes were a bit vague. Um, so I live with that. Then I developed um, heart disease, and really, in a huge rush, I had to have bypass surgery. Um, that could have been because I was, you know, back in those days when you thought you weren't going to, or I hadn't thought before I was going to live, I was an enthusiastic smoker, and um, but whatever, yeah, I, ha I had bypass surgery in 2004, I suppose. And then I developed mouth cancer. Now, at the moment, I can say um, five years clear of the last attack of the mouth. More than five, it's six years, I suppose. So I'm down to visiting, especially once every nine months. 
the eye is very stable, no sign of uh, the disease. Um, so I'm now down to visiting the eye doctor every 12 months because I know I'm a kind of experienced patient. If I have any concerns, um, I mean, I don't go running there just I feel a bit unwell. But, you know, um, I will be there. So all of this is meant, and my partner's also been awfully ill. He was having surgery on Friday. Um, in all this time, we've never got back to work, never got back to anything remotely matching the lives of other people. So here I am, 65 in a few months, no pension, no property, living in social housing, relying on ever scarier benefits, and you know, on top of that, worried, really very, very worried about the whole Brexit nonsense, because uh, Paco is Spanish, of course, and even though we're married, that doesn't, anyone that knows, follows these things, doesn't actually count under the government now, because they got so, talking about fake marriages, so... You know, this is not how I thought I'd be heading into my later years at all. Reliance on ever nastier sort of benefits regimes. And that will continue because, I mean, I, I, I won't get a pension. I, I'll get the pension credits, which are benefits. Hoping they're going to be a little kinder, perhaps. But, you know, it's it's not how I fancied it. You know, on the positive side, I, we're very in love. We're married. Our families have been very supportive of us. Um, we have our allotment. I, I count myself lucky in that sense. Yeah. Very yeah. lucky. To go back to the Lazarus effect that you were talking about, I was talking to um, Jonathan Blake, and he was saying that when he got like, the most that he's ever got, afterwards he was like jumping up. Like, when he got better, he like laid a patio in his back garden. And he's like, I, you know, I thought I was going to die, and all of a sudden I was laying a patio and I did it all by myself in like two days. Did you never have like, when you got better, it's just like a sense of relief, I guess, was it rather than like a big surge of energy? I can understand that lovely man, John. Um, but no, I didn't feel that because some of the. The way the infections had worked with me that I'd had, they'd done some lasting damage. So, you know, so I say jump up, it's metaphorical. I was, I uh, got bad legs, bad eyes. Uh, uh, so, 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 no, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't laying patios. So, when in all of this did you start working with the parasitic trust? Well, that would have been when the trust started. You know, as I say, I I heard Terry Higgins's friends talking at the meeting at the Conway Hall and I was that was eighty three, I can't remember exactly. I read somewhere that you were it was the sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Oh yes, the sisters. Oh that was lovely. They made me a saint. Yes. Oh, I can't remember my sainted name. Oh it's all I just remember an absolutely lovely lovely occasion. There was some wonderful people from Switchboard there as well. So will you explain to me what, what, what is that group? I think the sisters started in San Francisco. I, 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 I won't swear to that, but I think so. And it really is this kind of wonderfully positive sort of agitprop approach, if that term means anything to you. Oh, what does that mean? Well, we... It was protest done with masses of 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 of, of humour and 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 a lot of love. Okay. So, and it was a really and is a really positive 
counter to much of the 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 the, the tenor of any sort of uh, educations or discussions or whatever about HIV is really positively our identity as uh, uh, gay and lesbian people huge huge fun does that make any kind of yeah, sense yeah, yeah. so it's, it's both I mean I haven't seen it for years but I do know I do uh, I'm in touch with somebody who's still very much involved that um, um, and why were you canonized then? I suppose it was it was because of the very very public role I mean I had done a lot of work speaking in front of cameras I've been a very public face of Terence Against Trust and also given that I've you know I've been involved in, 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 in right from university so I think it was in recognition of that that I was and Derek Jarman was canonized at about the same time I think as well I, I knew him a, a bit did you tell your parents when you diagnosed yes I, I told my parents because my, my work with Terence Higgins Trust was very public. I was often on TV programs or radio programs and they always wanted to know because they said, we don't like it if we hear from other people and we've missed. We really were. I only remember one negative comment from my mother once saying, oh, it was really interesting what you were saying on television last night, but what on earth made you wear that shirt? Um, uh, very correct, you shouldn't wear busy colours on TV. It doesn't work. Um, so, so, so yes, I, 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 I had a lot of, always had a lot of support from my parents. In the midnight, in 97, I was awarded an MBE. Now, we're not going to get into discussions about the whole nature of British empires and things. I was glad to accept it and I was thrilled to be able to take my mother and father to Buckingham Palace because they had supported me so much. And in terms of the things that most people think of as success, you know, a home and money, and, and I had none of that, but I, I was pleased to get it. And another time, Mum and I went to dinner at St. James Palace, Prince of Wales, and, and Camilla, they weren't then married. It was a a dinner that they put together to support some HIV workers and organisations. We were sitting on the table with Prince of Wales and Camilla, and Camilla had made a beeline for my mother during the cocktails before because my mother was the oldest person there. And they got on tremendously well. And I'd already met the Prince of Wales. But I remember Camilla saying to Mum, Have you met the Prince of Wales? Mum said, No, no. And she was going, Charles, come over here, come over here. So I, those things gave me enormous pleasure yeah, to give so something special. back to my parents who've been so wonderfully kind and supportive. They sound like really cool people. Well, they were. Mum died yeah, earlier yeah. this year and poor dad was very ill. Yeah, all the family. I mean, my my nephew and niece, they're wonderful. And my nephew's in the army, which was the family, much for reasons that should be obvious. I didn't follow in the family tradition. But... Um, you know, he's a he's absolute sweetie. The, where there are four great nephews and nieces, I suppose you'd call them, and we're just wonderful. I've got I'm very fortunate. I've got a good family, and so has Paco in Spain. Given the choice, would you have chosen not to be gay? Well, I think when I was thirteen, I probably would have chosen not to be gay because this was the time of the you know the only gay people you ever saw was blacked out faces, and from the very first moment I I kissed a man. And just knew this was me. This was right. No, I wouldn't. I absolutely wouldn't. I'm quite happy that my 
sister and the rest of the family have the children and do all that kind of stuff. And I like to be an uncle or great uncle, but oh no, I wouldn't. Given the things that you know now and the experiences you went through, would you swap being gay in your 20s from where you were for being gay in your 20s and now? No. No, I, 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 I liked things or, you know, things were good, things were bad, whatever, as they were then. I, I, I you know, I, and I'm not going to come over all old geezerish and say, oh, young people today, they don't know. Um, the scene seems to be very different from what I can see, and there are all sorts of issues and things that have to be that one hears about. Um, I wouldn't swap. Is there anything that you would want young gay people to know based on your experiences? No, um, not really. Two, two, two things immediately come to mind. One, I've heard a lot of people say, try, when you're younger, try to look after yourself a little bit because one day you'll be old and you might wish it all worked a bit better. Um, I think the most significant thing is to think of one's sexuality within the context of the wider rights and issues within society and the world and um, to be very aware that whatever kind of freedoms you think you enjoy now could just as quickly disappear. Um, it's just a moment in time in a, in a, in a, in a long process that uh, do not think that this is uh, the end of uh, a struggle for freedom, uh, for rights, for, for the ability to, to get on and live your own life. It's, yeah. it's not. You've got to, I think you've got to keep alert. After the interview, we hugged and said goodbye. I pointed him in the direction of the station and he walked off. He's such a kind, warm-hearted man, and he's given so much of his life to helping other people. I really loved hanging out with him. I think most people who have been through what he's been through might be a bit down, but not Tony. He's still smiling and is completely charming. I'm really happy he agreed to meet with me because he's actually changed my outlook on a lot of things. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. If you did enjoy this episode, then please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. And you can also follow the podcast on Instagram, which is at Queer Margins, and on Facebook too.